0: Welcome to our fourth episode of Sperb's Herbs. This is our first episode of our World Herbs. So we are going to be exploring herbs of the world, not just Chinese herbs. And our first episode of the World Herbs is Kava Kava Piper Methisticum. And I, as always, am your host, Dr. Greg Sperber, and let's get into it. So today, we uh, please support us by using the Amazon banner ad on our homepage, www.sperbsherbs.com. If you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for CABCUs and NCCAOM PDAs at a reasonable cost. Available at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. O-R-G. That's integrativemedicinecouncil.org. And we are looking for sponsors for our podcasts. If you are looking for effective, super targeted, personalized advertising with an excellent return on investment, check out the advertising section of our website at www.sperbserbs.com. Long ago, orphan twins, a brother and a sister, were very close. A man wanted to marry the sister, but she refused. He pursued and continued to harass the sister. The brother, with much love and protection for his sister, defended her. In the struggle, the suitor notched an arrow to strike the brother the tussle that followed the arrow was loosed and struck the sister <clears throat> killing her the brother completely distraught dug a grave and buried his sister he went by the grave every day in mourning. a week after the burial an unusual plant grew alone over the grave a year passed and yet his sorrow did not abate. He would often visit the grave, and one day he saw a rat nibble the roots of the plant and die. His immediate impulse was to end his suffering, and he devoured a large amount of the roots and waited for death to come to him. Instead, as he lay there, he forgot all of his unhappiness. After that, he came back often to partake of the magical root and taught others how to use them. This is one of the common mythical origins for Kava Kava, a root that is described magical powers and is used for many purposes in its native lands, including important ceremonies, social connections, medicine, as well as being a considerable part of local economics. Few herbs have had the singular impact of kava kava on the culture where it is grown. Most experts agree kava kava was first cultivated on the island of Tonga in the South Pacific. From there it spread to local islands such as Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Hawaii, and others. Wherever it landed, it became a significant part of the local culture. And though there were similarities, each island developed different rules and ceremonies around its use. Even the origin myths differ and yet maintain some similarities. Like the myth discussed they often involve death and rebirth. Another example of this is the Tonga origin myth. One day while the King and his friend were fishing they became tired and landed on a small island where lived a couple and their daughter, Kava'ano. Realizing the man resting against a plant on the beach was the king, the couple immediately started to prepare a proper meal, first constructing an earth oven. There was a famine on the islands during this time and the couple saw the king leaning against the only food bearing plant. The couple struck their daughter and was preparing her for the king's meal. The king's friends saw this and told the king, who was so moved, left for the main island and instructed the couple to properly bury their child. Two plants grew from the grave, kava from the head and sugar cane from the fruit. The couple saw a rat bite the first stagger and then bite the second and recovered its balance. A hero instructed the couple who passed on the instructions to the king that kava was to be made into a drink and to be eaten with sugarcane. So that's another origin myth. And as you can see, there's that element of death and to a certain extent, rebirth, not, not quite as strongly as in the first myth, but definitely death. So Kava is still used in important ceremonies and has, but it has also become an important economic contributor to the region. It has become one of the most lucrative crops grown on some Polynesian islands. It has become a commodity with export quantities and costs fluctuating. So it used to be uh, a luxury item, uh, could command high mu- high value for it. But now since its so it's use is so widespread and South Pacific is definitely the best place to grow it. So they have, uh, they, they grow it there, but it has become a commodity which Means that it fluctuates with more market forces, and so export quantities. If there's more quantity than the than the uh, cost of it, the price of it will go down, and if there's less supply and demand, if there's less supply, then the cost will go go up. So it does fluctuate in that context. It is used in many ways, as the social bev- as the social. I can't even say it. Social beverage for chiefs and noblemen so you see this a lot and again these sort of cultural things do seem to change from island to island so you do need to uh, it's hard to do broad um, strokes on this but in general uh, at least on many islands Kava Kava was except for certain ceremonial aspects was reserved for the chiefs and noblemen that the commoners were not allowed to, to take kava, even to the point where uh, an island or two had laws against it and you could be punished for for drinking kava. It is used to welcome distinguished visitors at formal gatherings, it, at initiation and completion of work, uh, generally more uh, community social work, but uh, it could be for, for, you, for uh, other kinds of work as well, used in preparing for a journey or on an ocean voyage and used in installation in office, validation of titles and ratification of agreements. So governmental sort of aspects as well as agreements. Can be used, is used for celebration of important births, marriages and deaths as a libation to the gods. So as, as a, uh, as a uh, ritual, a religious ritual aspect to it and of course it can be used to cure illnesses and to remove curses there is sort of a, a um, uh, medical religious aspect to this absolutely also as a prelude to tribal wars and and the opposite to end tribal wars for treaties and things along those lines so that's sort of the uh it's many uses at least culturally and historically now today um while we, we said that it's uh, generally was reserved for noblemen and, and chiefs. Today on several islands, uh, in, including Tonga, I believe it's Tonga, uh, Fiji is a big one. It's it's imbibed almost every day like coffee is here in the United States. And so uh, it is much more egalitarian in in the common days. Also, historically, and we might get into this a little bit more when these islands first had the, the missionaries come over, the Christian missionaries come over, they saw Kava as sort of a two-pronged threat. So first of all, you know, the, the missionaries were not particularly keen on any sort of, of um, drug or alcohol use, the, anything that would kind of make you a little loopy. So the, at that aspect, as we're going to see, Kava can make you that way. So it was against it in that aspect, but also because it was so interweaved into the culture It was, uh, by attacking Kava, it was a great way to kind of minimize those cultural attachments and allow more of the missionaries' work to be done. So uh, for a few hundred years there, it was a huge target of of the Christian missionaries to these islands. And so for a long time, the Kava culture and its historical significance waned. But as soon as the Christian missionaries left, it seemed to come back again in and, and a lot of these islands. I'm not going to say universally, but in most islands. And so there was a sort of rebound of, of kava that happened. Usually when you read about this in the late 1800s, early 1900s was when we saw a lot of that happening. Uh, and then uh, and then just as modern uh, as modernity, as 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 modern life kind of took hold in these islands. We saw that kava was generally used less and less and more for ceremonial sort of aspects until it started having its spread around as an herb as, and its usefulness started to happen. So that that occurred. And uh, so then we see an uptick in kava growing, at least if, if kava use and if, if kava use did increase on the islands, it was more for these egalitarian purposes as opposed to uh, the more uh, segregationist aspects of it. That is an overview of the history and culture. Uh, we are going to talk about traditional use and and functions of Kava Kava. It's uh, history we've already gotten, a, gotten into, but we're going to get a little bit more into it. Um, what is quality ga- Kava Kava? What is the science behind it and the pharmacology? What evidence? We're going to talk a bit about evidence of its functions and any potential interactions. So we're going to get into all these aspects of Kava Kava. So they mentioned at the onset, the standard species is Piper methysticum. Methisticum, uh, methisticum uh, is is um, a Latinate word um, basically meaning uh, m- mysterious, mythical. And that's because people often are dreamy when they take it. So, The medicinal parts are the root and rhizome, though you'll see use of other parts of the plants we're going to talk about briefly about one use or two uses of, of the leaves of it uh, but generally you want to keep it to the root and rhizome and we'll, we'll talk about why that that may be the case there are lots of other names for this uh, including awa and kawa uh, I, I, you've heard me say kava a lot in this and kava kava is probably the the most traditional name and then kava is often used a, as well just one and you heard me say that quite a bit It can be called kava pepper because as we're going to talk about in a little bit it actually is a pepper. It's in the pepper genus and so we're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, So this word Y-A-Q-O-N-A which in the local language is actually pronounced Yangona or Yangona. That's again I don't know if there's any particular emphases on on how you do this but um, instead of a Q sound it's a G sound so Yangona. So sometimes you'll see it spelled Y-A-Q-O-N-A and sometimes Y-A-N-G-O-N-A. So the Q is an N-G sound, Yangonam. You'll see it sometimes as Sava Pepper, Gamoda, Wati, Gia or Gi. So the first one is G-E-A, Gia or Gia. I'm not sure if that's a soft G or a hard G, so either Gia or Gia. And then gi or G uh, for G-I, so not to be Confused with G H E E or clarified butter, and then one of the things that I found interesting when when studying kava kava is that this is incredibly popular in Germany, and so one of the names is Rauschpfeffer, uh, R O A U S C H P F E F F E R Rauschpfeffer, which is the German name for kava kava, uh, incredibly common there. In fact, it's uh, there you're not familiar with their, their Commission E report, uh, their Commission, e in order to, e they have Commission E has monographs on herbs and tells whether they're safe or not and all that. And it's considered one of the, the high high watermarks of, of herb uh, science, at least it, it, it was, it's getting a little bit older at this point. I don't know if it's been updated. And so there's a it's 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 in the commissionee monographs and actually is is says it's quite effective, uh, for what it does. So uh, that's very important. So that's a lot of different terms for kava kava. Many of these terms refer to the taste and can be translated often simultaneously as sour, bitter, acrid, salty, sharp, and or pungent. So for example, I think uh, yangona. Uh, means two or three of these like sour bitter and sharp or something along those lines and so that's describing the taste of it it's it's not exactly supposed to be that pleasant of a taste Uh, but then again you could say the same about coffee so who am i to judge or any of us standard dosage on this is 6 to 12 grams daily or 60 to 600 milligrams of the cavalactone we're going to talk about the cavalactones in a little bit but those tend to be Thought of as active ingredients but not entirely there are other aspects of kava kava that have been shown to have uh, some interesting effects and we'll get into all that uh garen who uh is a uh, author who wrote uh a book that translates western herbs into chinese herbs states that the daily dose should be three to fifteen grams so that's a much wider sort of daily dose well not much a little wider than uh earlier studies. so instead of six to twelve grams he says three to fifteen grams daily dose would be appropriate and then I I gotta say when you look at all the different sources they'll break them down they'll they'll say if it's in uh, if it's a oil solvent or an alcohol solvent or all that but this is generally these are for uh, decoctions water solvents and uh, some of the active ingredients and it it gets down it it can get really wild into the dosage but this is a good general dosing for this so let's talk about that Piper genus. So, if you listen to our last episode of Sperm's Herbs, we talked about Shao Ren and Fructus And we talked about, uh, we really got into families, genus, and species. So, if you want to go back and, and take a listen to that, that would be helpful for this. But remember, we generally will talk, we talk, we said that this is Piper me, me, uh, methisticum. And so the Piper part is called the genus and the Methysticum is the species and actually there's subspecies of this the most popular being uh, George Foster uh, or G. Foster and you'll see why that might be significant in a subspecies. Just a little bit, but the genus Piper is commonly known as pepper plants and includes the spices we know as pepper. I, I say spices we know as pepper because you have black pepper, green pepper, white pepper, which are all the same plant Piper nigrum uh but they're processed differently so that's why i say uh spices there are several spices there that we know as pepper it also includes several medicinal herbs including betel nut and our herb today betel nuts interesting we're going to talk a little bit about that but that's in this genus as well and it's actually a very large genus it has over 1,000 species in the genus so it's it's pretty up there as far as size is concerned Kava Kava was first discovered by Europeans on the first voyage of the Endeavour and that took place in 1768 to 71. If you're not familiar with the Endeavour with James Cook as the captain, this is the expedition that uh, founded, that found Australia and and explored the South Pacific. And so uh, having lived in Australia, James Cook is is one of the the national, uh, if not hero founders, and so very well revered there. And on this first voyage, they had a botanist, Daniel Schlölander. He was Swedish Schlölander and Sidney Parlinson as an artist. These were the first to actually document Kava Kava. But the first detailed description had to wait until Cook's second expedition, which happened, well, right after the first one. The first one was 1768 to 1771. And the second one was 1772 to 1775. So three years three or four years on each of these and the first uh, detailed description was by Johann George Forster who, uh, who accompanied James Cook on his second expedition remember I said that the subspecies that is often considered sort of the prototypical kava kava is Piper me- methisticum G Forster I, I may have said Foster I forgot that are there Forster and so that's the actual Uh, subspecies name that is considered for the prototypical kava kava there's lots of different subspecies and cultivars of kava kava and there are descriptions of which island has the strongest and which has the weakest for example uh, one of my sources said Samoa is generally recognized to have uh, relatively weak kava kava and and at the same time weak kava culture it's not as well integrated as some of the other uh, kava isn't as well integrated into culture as it is in some other islands and so the the thought was is that because the kava that grows on Samoa is weaker and doesn't have as strong effects as on some of the other islands or is it or some other aspect and reason why it was not as uh, kava centered culture aboriginal uses origins of kava use predate any written language or or record so when you go and you look at these pacific islands and there's a lot of them there was no written language before the europeans came in so this view i just gave you as first discovered by europeans is of course a very eurocentric view of the discovery of kava kava but part of that is because there's no written language on any of the south pacific islands and the oral traditions were so disparate that you couldn't actually determine what may or may not have been a true origin story for the Kava or approximation of the timing or anything along those lines. So really, we have to look at that European sort of uh, place to get any sort of history about Kava Kava. Uh, Though, as we we already talked about, there's lots of myths around Kava Kava. And I gave you two of them. I mean, literally, there's... my research turned up at least a dozen uh, probably closer to 20 or, or two dozen uh, different myths similar some more violent, some, a lot more a se- lot of them are way more sexual uh, so that's another aspect of the of the myths that that come in uh, one even described the plant growing into the vagina of a woman uh, i mean it's it they're they're they could be quite graphic and again very different even on the same island they would have different myths so uh, you can imagine if you're you're trying to find the historical origins of this from the from the the islanders it would be very difficult to to parse myth from fact and try to establish a timeline so unfortunately we do have to stick with our european accounts of it there are two theoretical origins of kava use one was that it was first used in the new guinea indonesia area and this was spread by people using canoes to explore surrounding areas. So that's where it got to the South Pacific Islands. Uh, like I said, for for a lot of purposes, Tonga is considered kind of the, the center of that. Uh, so that was that's the probable, if this is the, the correct theoretical origin that it started in New Guinea, Indonesia area, then it was spread by canoes to explore surrounding areas, which is not unheard of, that, that people of course would take food and substances in their canoes as they explored. Uh, and this theory also, if, it, if, it or, if its origin was New Guinea, Indonesia, there are two other uh, theories about how it was spread. Uh, one seems pretty improbable. And that one is that island attachment to the mainland. So all the islands were attached to the mainland. Uh, and, and the problem is if you look at the the history of Kava and the geographical history, these do not match up. So it's, it's unlikely that there was a land bridge or there was actual connections that allowed to spread to the to the islands. You know, if you look at these South Pacific Islands, they're geographically very recent constructs. Uh, they're all around the, the Ring of Fire and, and some relatively new islands. And so that doesn't make uh, a lot of sense. The other one was that the plants actually drifted on the ocean almost randomly to different islands and again that just doesn't make sense especially when you look at the cultures of the peoples in the area so that would be the first theoretical origin is that it started in the new, new guinea indonesia area and was spread by uh, people canoeing to their surrounding areas the second theory is that it actually came from the asian subcontinent and there are three st- theories of it spread from there so one is it came from south china and if you look at the kava ceremonies, there are some similarities to tea ceremonies from South China, from that region of South China. So that's, there, there's some support potentially for that. Now, it this doesn't talk about how it was spread, but you know probably through trade and, and other aspects and exploration. Uh, so that's one is that it comes from South China. The other one is that it came from India and Vedic or Vedic traditions appear were spread with the kava and these Vedic traditions actually appear to be closer to the actual kava ceremonies. So that actually has probably a little bit more support if you just look at its, its use and, and its ceremonies around it so that it actually came from India rather than South China. And then an interesting theory, uh, this paper I, I, I read by uh, Singen and Bartholomew, Barth, I think it was Bartholomew, uh, was that it competed with the beetle traditions. Remember I said beetle nuts are actually part of the same family and they're considered uh, intoxicant to a certain extent. Mild intoxicant might be the way to say but there are lots of, of uh, areas where beetle nut uh, chewing is, is very common and popular. And so that kava actually competed with these beetle traditions and went out in certain areas and not others. So some, some areas use beetle nut and others use kava kava. And uh, there was a lot of interesting discussion uh, about this. But uh, I, I think the, the fact that they're in the same genus to me is very fascinating. most accounts of drinking traditional kava discuss a numbing and astringent effect on the tongue and to a lesser extent the inner lining of the mouth so that you actually get a numbing of the mouth and tongue and food eaten afterwards will not be tasted so um, didn't want to eat particularly afterwards its effects include reduction of fatigue and anxiety and producing a generally pleasant, cheerful, and sociable attitude. This is an interesting. There's not many herbs where they talk about attitudes that happen after you take it, but a cheerful and sociable attitude, which would explain some of its use in ceremonies and especially like the the ending of of, of wars. Or and so very interesting. Uh, some describe the effects bordering on intoxication. Uh, I, Taking higher doses definitely gets into intoxication when you, when you look at the literature. So that is uh, definitely intoxication is an interesting aspect of this. There are many accounts of people losing their ability to use their limbs. In other words, they're, they're having trouble to stand up or to, to grab things with their arms. Different varieties, as I mentioned earlier, different varieties in different parts of the plant may be of stronger or weaker effect. So I said, you know, there are different varieties, except the Samoa variety is considered to be relatively weaker uh, as compared with some of the the other islands. And as I mentioned earlier, historically, it was a target of missionaries who disliked the deleterious effects of Kavuk, but more importantly, disliked its strong social connections. So that was know a little bit of the issue there so good quality kava is generally well first we, we think of the rhizomes which are the lateral roots coming off of the the bigger root are generally more potent than the root itself so uh, you it, the highest quality is the rhizomes when dried high quality should be peeled we're gonna see why peeling is important The peel should be black or dark gray on the outside and relatively white on the inside. And the inside should be striated. Uh, One source said it should be pulpy. Another source said it should be mealy. So mealy, pulpy, striated would be good quality of Kava Kava. It's traditionally used to treat numerous ailments. So one of the accounts that I looked at was Uh, in Hawaii and this is according to Singh and Blumenthal who I mentioned earlier they had a really nice uh, summary article in uh, the in in one of the journals what I really liked about this article was a good solid uh, review article of Kava Kava you'll see that in the bibliography and of course you can access that directly if you want to But what I really liked about this is that Singh was actually I believe he was a Fijian and so had traditional or at least lived on Fiji and had very strong traditional roots, route and could understand a lot of the traditional uses and aspects to it. So it was a, an interesting article in that context. So they said it was used to soothe the nerves, to induce relaxation and sleep, to counteract fatigue, for congestion in the urinary tract, for asthma and rheumatism, and to reduce weight. So it actually reduces weight. The, and they also they continued the leaf was used as a poultice. I said normally we we look at the rhizomes and the and the and the root. But in this case, it also describes the use of the leaf was used as a poultice for a headache or placing under a patient to make him or her perspire to break a cold or fever, which right there, that line is kind of interesting uh, patient to make him or her resp- perspire to break a cold or fever, because that's sort of how the Chinese look at this as well, that we. A productive we talk about a productive pr- sweat can be very useful in treating a wind attack which could be a cold or a fever so uh, inter- i i found that interesting because of the correlation with chinese medicine chinese medical action so according to garen so garen again remember wrote that book that kind of translates western herbs into chinese word uh, chinese functions Uh, According to him, kava is acrid, bitter, acrid or spicy, bitter, warm, and there's the heart, liver and spleen. So there's another book, an older book that is called the Energetics of Western Herbs. and They had slightly different aspects of this. They they talked about the stomach and intestines, not so much about the heart and liver, uh, and I believe warm was in there, but I'm not sure spicy. I think sweet was in there. I know sweet was, was there. So slightly different things. So again, this is not a traditional herb. There is controversy about how this herb should be perceived from a from a Chinese perspective. Um, I, I tend to like Garen. I, I think he has a little bit more uh, research uh, background to what he does. So I'm kind of sticking with what, what he says, but I'm, I'm just talking about this, that there are other uh interpretations of how this this herb could do it but when you looked at the functions there were some dissimilarities but there were also some similarities as well so garen says that kava is anxiolytic anxiolytic literally means splitting anxiety and so this is anti-anxiety basically which if you look at all the literature that's usually the first thing at the at the top of the list he also says it's sedative which i find interesting because when we look at the drugs we the anxiolytics and the sedatives are often in the same class of drugs. So uh, when you look at our, anti- our anxiolytic drugs, we're looking at benzodiazepines, which depending on how rapidly benzodiazepines work can be anxiolytic or sedative. It can put you out to sleep or hypnotic. The other word for the synonym for sedative in, in uh, pharmacology is hypnotic, hypnotic sedative. Um, but then we also have the barbiturate, barbiturates. Uh, which are sedative and hypnotic only. They are not anxiolytic. And so we'll see uh, y- there may be some interactions between kava and the barbiturates. Uh, and there's a lot of study around the benzodiazepines and, and kava use. The other thing that is said to do is a muscle relaxant. And when we look at some of the, the effects at the research, it, it actually describes it as anti-convulsant, anticonvulsive, and the descriptions, the traditional descriptions of people taking this and just not being able to stand and having to be uh, like with the chiefs, they would have attendants that would take care of them because they couldn't move afterwards. So, muscle relaxant definitely seems to be a strong effect of kava. From Chinese traditional actions, Garen says it rectifies the qi or moves the chi and calms the spirit. So, calming spirit, if we're looking at anxiolytic, uh calming the spirit would be kind of the the closest thing from a Chinese perspective to that it dispels wind and dampness now when we look at wind and dampness in this context it actually is sort of analgesic Uh, we say that uh, wind and damp obstruction is uh, pain especially in the joints Uh, often there's different types of wind and dampness uh, attacks like when cold when heat uh, uh, other types but uh we often equate that to different types of arthritis or or, or, or uh, different types of arthritis things along those lines so when we say dispels wind and dampness in this context we're we're talking about sort of its pain relieving aspects of course that's the next thing that garen says is it relieves pain both internally and topically he did describe topically that it it does uh, disperse pain topically but for short periods of time and doesn't actually have a deep effect in that context, which I would put a lot of our pain topicals in that in that sort of same sort of thing. But it has been shown we're going to see some of the science behind it. And so analgesic effects are actually fairly strongly observed from a scientific and in, 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 stu- in studies. So it is also Garen also says it transforms phlegm, including the lung, stomach and liver channels so that Dispelling of dampness, one of the things he doesn't say in here, but if you look at the traditions, and I think it would be very, very uh, cohesive with Chinese medicine to say that it promotes urination. And when you look at all our drained damp herbs, they all promote urination. So I think draining damp uh, is, is definitely in there. That transforming phlegm is like a step above draining of damp uh, and transforming phlegm, that warm transforming phlegm we talked a little bit about transforming of dampness uh, in our last episode on 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 fructus and momming sha-ren so some interesting Chinese functions of kava Garen does describe a few combinations for kava uh, he says with California poppy for disquieted heart spirit now when we say disquieted heart spirit the the Chinese translation of that is shen uh, so it's um, I, it, that's a real complicated thing. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point, uh, because it would be a fascinating discussion on on Shen. Uh, maybe when we get into some of the herbs that that uh, help calm the spirit, but it's uh, it's an important aspect of Chinese medicine. And so, uh, again, the combination is with Chinese uh, with California poppy for disquieted heart spirit or Shen, with signs and symptoms of insomnia, anxiety, and frightfulness. So that would be one combination the other combination which i thought was was interesting is with one of my favorite one of my favorite formulas Gamai Dazao Tang, which is licorice wheat and jujube decoction which is super simple i love it it only includes licorice wheat and jujube which are chinese dates that's all it is and sometimes it's it's translated uh, chinese date decoction rather than jujube uh, decoction uh, and it's that's all it is it's a super simple formula and yet it's it's a relatively profound and powerful formula and he says the combination of kava with the Daza Dazaton really helps anxiety and restlessness due to overthinking. So that's a that's a fascinating use of Kava with that. And I could totally see where those would go very well together. He described a few other combinations as well, which went kind of deep into Western herbology, so I didn't I didn't include them here. Um, also a, a whole list of different combinations. Uh, Isn't always helpful, but those two were, I thought, very interesting combinations to to talk about. So the science is relatively safe. Is it relatively safe based on the fact that you can have a lot of it before it becomes toxic? So that would be, um, you know, relatively safe. But let's talk about some of the issues with it. Overuse may cause similar issues to alcoholism. I did not see Any of the literature talking about tolerance, dependency or withdrawal symptoms uh, around the use of kava like there might be with alcoholism. So I'm not saying there isn't these sort of addictive aspects, tolerance, dependency or withdrawal, but I didn't see anything while while reviewing this. And there is one interesting study that looked at the use of kava in northern Australian aborigines, aboriginal peoples and it talked about its intoxicating effects and how it was having uh, social aspects that were it was it was kind of weakening the social aspects and, and kava was actually brought into australia sort of to counteract the alcoholism that was pretty rampant in the especially in the, in the northern aborigines and so they thought this might be a good substitute and this study said no actually it's has its own set of problems that are pretty similar but then Subsequent studies have said, well, that was a little biased and was probably not the strongest study, at least one of the review articles that I read alluded to that. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's strong evidence for the addictive aspects of kava. What we can say is that there are lots of people on these islands that do take it every day and uh, almost like our coffee. And I wouldn't be surprised to see if there's some some uh, depend- some addictive I- issues, but I don't know if that's been well established at this point. So one of the things when you read about this as a, and we're gonna talk about uh, a different aspects of this. Uh, one of the, the toxic aspects of this is something that there have been reported hepatotoxicity of kava. So hepatotoxicity means it's toxic to the liver. Hepato means liver. Uh, and, but this, the studies have not shown any increase in hepatotoxicity by native users. So in other words, if you take it traditionally, you, you're on the islands, you're using it every day, you have no increased rate of liver conditions as opposed to anyone who doesn't have uh, kava on a regular basis so it's an interesting aspect of this and there are theories as to why this may show up one of those is certain extraction techniques might pull out aspects of kava that might be more hepatotoxic than others and so just having an extract or a particular type of extract there's lots of ways to extract things and so that could could potentially cause some of the hepatotoxicity that there's an aspect that isn't traditionally taken out of the kava root but is during some of these extraction techniques the other one is that uh, parts of the plants other than the root and rhizomes uh, may contribute to this toxicity and so if you're not sure of the source or the extraction techniques they may be using other parts of the kava which may have some more of this uh, hepatotoxicity to it so that may be some of the reasons why, I mean, the the commonality between both of those is processed uh, kava, which of course, we we don't grow it in the States that I'm aware of. And so we are, everything we have would be be processed. And therefore we don't know exactly everything that goes into it. And so that could be an, an issue with this. Now we get into more of the the science of this and uh what are the actual claims around kava kava so we talked briefly that it is muscle relaxing Uh, the science actually one of the claims is that it's centrally muscle relaxing which means that it doesn't work on the muscles it actually works on the brain to relax the muscles which is interesting anti-convulsive and anti-spasmodic so it helps spasms anti-convulsive when you look at anti-seizure medications they're sometimes called anti-convulsive and there is some research looking into positively small into anti-seizure aspects of kava so that makes sense so all of this is muscle relaxing as i mentioned hypnotic sedative uh aspects so it does help you sleep anxiolytic like i said is is probably the king of the of the uh, Thoughts around what does this kava do? Uh, it is analgesic, so it, it it helps pain, and this is probably and very interestingly probably due to COX two inhibition. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. I just want to mention it right now. COX is cyclooxygenase, and its its uh, shortened name is COX. COX, uh, and you'll I'll explain why that's important in just a minute in vitro it shows some antibacterial effects so in vitro means in glass literally means in glass but that means for our purposes it means not in humans like you put some bacteria in a petri dish you put in some kava kava and it dies so it's antibacterial in that context uh, there has not been any evidence to this point that it's it's actually useful in vivo or in life so don't know about that antifungal And in this case, again, in vitro in humans, but it has been shown to be antifungal in animals as well. So that's an interesting aspect of this. Uh, So we do have some confirmation of some antifungal activity, at least in animals. It's thought to potentially be anti-inflammatory as well. And that goes hand in hand with that COX-2 inhibition that we we mentioned earlier, so anti-inflammatory. And even anti-thrombotic, so this means it it helps blood clots. It, it helps prevent blood clots. And while it's probably not very strong in that aspect and, and some of the evidence is, is minimal on that, it does at least throw up an issue when it comes to drug-herb interactions. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's talk about those enzylolytic effects. These have actually been supported in various meta-studies, though some smaller reviews did not show the same effect uh, I do like the the Commission E was big on this uh, said that it, it actually showed uh, quite a bit of anxiolytic effects there was a 2003 Cochrane review on the Kava extract and anxiolytic effects. so if you're not familiar with Cochrane reviews I they're kind of I, I, I like them a lot and I go there when I'm researching all of this but Cochrane reviews are uh, come out of the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. And the Cochrane reviews are meta-studies. So there are a whole bunch of different types of research and studies that can come out on any given subject. When we're talking about herbs, kind of the, the king of a of a study is or a, a trial is what's known as a double-blinded, randomly controlled trial. Uh, We're not going to get too much into that, but that's just the highest level of evidence as far as a trial is concerned. And then a meta-study is a step above that, and uh, a good meta-study will combine several or many uh, double-blind randomly controlled trials into one meta-study, so a study of studies basically. And that's actually considered, when it's high quality, is considered some of the best evidence or against any given hypothesis so the Cochrane database is all about these these type of meta studies so uh, they tend to be conservative i i find them to be a little bit slightly on the negative side which is actually good in, in in science and so they concluded that kava extract is an effective symptomatic treatment for anxiety there is a few caveats to that of course it says the effect seems to be relatively small Was based on a relatively small sample size Uh, when you get into some of these other meta studies they do talk about that uh, for minor anxiety not for me uh, for severe or medium strength anxiety Uh, so but I think I'm comfortable saying it's fairly well established that kava is good for anxiety so if I had anxiety which I don't but if i did i would certainly start with kava and see if that helped the anxiety before i went to some of the heavy drugs uh like benzodiazepines uh and 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 one of the the aspects that i know about benzodiazepines that that may not be well known is that benzodiazepines are the number one illicit illicitly used drug in the united states the exception of alcohol and probably smoking you know nicotine that sort of thing but uh, illicit meaning that it's illegal and those are not illegal Uh, And you might throw caffeine in there too but so illegal drugs so benzodiazepines are the number one used illegal drug in the United States and it's not a huge issue because most of the people addicted to this are you know sort of the classic one would be a 60 or 70 year old woman who has trouble sleeping and has anxiety and so she's been on this for 20 or 30 years to help her get through things and doesn't show a lot she does show tolerance which means she needs to have a higher dose of it uh, in order to have the same effects but because she doesn't try to withdraw she doesn't have withdrawal symptoms and the, and uh, dependence isn't a big deal if you stop benzodiazepines after you've been on them for a long time you will have rebound insomnia you will have trouble sleeping for quite a while and it can be very disconcerting, especially when you're elderly and may have some health issues it can be a huge issue So, contents of kava include the kava lactones also called cavopyrones these appear to be the quote unquote active constituent because we're going to talk about others that are active as well uh, may reduce excitability of neurons due to ion channel effects uh, one study said it was sodium ion channel effects and these are voltage gated so voltage gated sodium ion channels which are used to propagate an action potential in neurons. So it reduces the excitability of those neurons because it blocks that sodium channel to a certain extent. According to Spinella, Spinella wrote a book on the psychopharmacology of herbs. It may block the reuptake of norepinephrine. Uh, so if you look at norepinephrine, that's uh, one of three neurotransmitters that are used in depression and, and uh, has asthma. Depression, anxiety are, are uh, closely related so it blocks the reuptake of norepinephrine, uh, which is sort of how uh, we have, s- uh, if you're familiar with antidepressants, there's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and there are serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So this would be in that second category of things and uh, is uh, interesting. Uh, you don't hear a lot about antidepressant activity in these, in these effects, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of that in there. Uh, other contents include, uh, and I, I might botch some of the names of this, the pronunciations, cavaine, Dihydro Kavein, also known as Merindanine, uh, Methistecin. Methi- you see all of these, cavaine it has Kava in the word, has is based on the meth- Methisticum species that it comes from, Dihydromethysticin, uh, yanganine, uh, again, one of the, w- the, the, Names, uh, alternate names of kava is uh, uh, y- yangon, so yanganine, uh, desmethoxyyanganine, and several uh, calzones are also or cal- calcones are also constituents. So the analgesic effects are often ascribed to kavain, dihydrocavaine, methysticin, and dihydromethysticin. They interestingly do not involve the opioid system. And the reason why we know this is you can give naloxone which actually kind of reverses the the opioid uh actions and it does not reverse its effects so in other words you still have analgesia even if you're given an opioid blocker if you want to say the common term for it so we know that it doesn't uh, affect the opioid system, which would be interesting in our current state of opioid of the opioid epidemic this its analgesic effects aren't super strong but this could pl- possibly play a role there's also cox-2 inhibition i said we were going to talk a little bit about this so cox-2 is actually what is inhibited in our analgesics so our non anti-inflammatory drugs NSAIDs so our aspirin our ibuprofens our, our all those others even uh and then you, you even get into the, uh, certain drugs like celecoxib, which is a cox-2 inhib- inhibitor a selective inhibitor so cox-2 is a enzyme cox remember means cyclooxygenase that's short for cyclooxygenase uh, cox-1 is often protective for different aspects especially the lining of the of the stomach which is why when you have non-selective cox inhibition which happens with aspirin and most of the NSAIDs other, other than silicoxib or other cox-2 uh, selective inhibitors it also inhibits cox-1 Cava does inhibit a little bit of cox-1 but not super strongly and that is the protective cox so that's why we would get ulcers with those those uh, stomach ulcers and other aspects uh, with those those kind of drugs uh, is because it inhibits cox-1 but cox-2 is the pain relieving aspect when you Inhibit COX-2, you don't have as much pain as analgesic. And so that is thought to be primarily caused by dihydrocavain and yanganine, the COX-2 inhibition. So it it definitely has some analgesic effects, at least uh, with the science that we're looking at. So very interesting there we do have some drug-herb interactions to be concerned about so uh, different sources said different things about which cytochrome p 450s are inhibited if you're not familiar with cytochrome p450 it's one of the major targets that we look at when we're looking at drug herb or drug-drug interactions you can learn a lot more about that in some of my other courses that are available on integrativemedicinecouncil.org and so When a drug interferes with cytochrome P450 or an herb interferes with cytochrome P450, this is used as as a metabolism. Uh, It's important in breaking down of drugs. So if you interfere with that, you can reduce the breaking down of other drugs. So that's where a lot of these drug-herb interactions can happen. So there's some pretty good evidence that kava inhibits cytochrome p450 2e1 so 2e1 is a subtype there's lots of different subtypes of cytochrome p450 2e1 is is not the most common of of cytochrome p450 subtypes the the most common is 3a4 and it doesn't look like kava inhibits or interferes with 3a4 Uh, there was one source but it didn't have any evidence it just said it gave a list of a lot of different cytochrome p450 enzymes and said it interferes with it but then there was nothing supporting that so i'm, I'm discounting that it was the only source that that said some of those so i'm discounting that source there was one study that showed some cyp1a2 inhibition uh, another uh, source said that there wasn't 1a2 inhibition so i'm gonna i'm gonna say that's that's minimal evidence for 1a2 i think really we're looking at 2e1 and uh, off the top of my head, five to 10% of drugs might, might use 2E1 when compared with like 3A4, which is 40 to 60% of drugs may use 3A4. So w- some concern of interactions, but not major. So uh, there were a couple studies that looked at Calvin use with bromazepam, which is a benzodiazepine and another study with digoxin which is an antiarrhythmic a very strong drug digoxin with a narrow therapeutic index so very high potential for drug herb interactions and those studies actually did not see any interactions with between kava and um, bromazepam uh, or digoxin kava and digoxin so that's pretty positive there are a few case studies that showed some enhanced effects when used with benzodiazepines so be a little bit concerned with benzodiazepines uh, but, you know, I'd be using these instead of benzos and then uh, benzos are short for benzodiazepines. And if I had to take a benzodiazepine, I would probably stop the Kava Kava. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily put them together. And then because I mentioned there may be some anticoagulant effect and antiplatelet effects uh, were, were shown with, with Kava in, a, in some small studies, it may enhance anticoagulants and antiplatelet drugs. I'm generally pretty conservative when combining herbs with anticoagulant and antiplatelet drugs. And uh, so I I don't think that's a a huge concern. I wouldn't generally combine herbs with those drugs, uh, especially something like Warfarin, which is an anticoagulant. Um, But there's some potential for some drug herb interactions in that context. so some concerns we have with kava kava it is contraindicated the the books are all pretty in line with this contraindicated in pregnancy and lactation so uh, women should not be taking this while pregnant or breastfeeding large doses of kava mixed with alcohol are additive in its effects so you should not be drinking alcohol and taking kava at the same time that will really mess you up so Uh, There is an interesting skin condition, which uh, from a Western point of view is called Kava Dermopathy, Uh, the the traditional name is Kani, K-A-N-I, and this skin condition includes dry and scaly skin, especially in the palm, soles of the feet, forearm, back, and shins and it stops when you stop taking kava and it only happens after long-term use so you take it for six months to a year and then it starts to do that Uh, and one of the thoughts is that this may be because it inhibits certain b vitamins uh unfortunately one of the the b vitamins that was looked at was niacin and and that didn't look like that was the cause of this you know uh, if you took niacin with kava, it didn't change the aspect of the skin condition. So, uh, not entirely sure, but that's one of the, the theories around it. It's contra uh, I can't even say contraindicating cases of endogenous depression. So, natural depression. If you're depressed, you shouldn't take this. And this is one book's concern. And the, and the idea was that it's due uh, that you shouldn't take it with depression due to its potential for suicide. It's not that kava causes suicide. It's that a suicidal depressed patient might have enough energy after taking kava to be able to actually carry through on the, on the suicide, which is a concern with all antidepressants uh, for the most part. So uh, they thought that was a, a considerable concern for this. Kava is associated with a rare severe liver, liver condition. We, we alluded to this before with our talk about hepatotoxicity. Risks increase with liver metabolized drugs and frequent use of alcohol. So, though, if you are taking other drugs or, or frequently use alcohol, uh, your chances of, of liver condition is, is possible. The American Herbal Products Association requires uh, from their members the following statement when, uh, on Cava on products. And here's that statement caution. US FDA advises that a potential risk of rare but severe liver injury may be associated with Kava containing dietary supplements. Ask a healthcare professional before use if you have or have had liver problems. Frequently frequent use frequently use frequently frequent use of alcohol beverage alcoholic beverages or taking any medication Stop, use, and see a doctor if you develop symptoms that may signal liver problems, e.g. unexplained fatigue, abdominal pain, loss of appetite, fever, vomiting, dark urine, pale stools, yellow eyes, or skin. Not for use by persons under 18 years of age or by pregnant or breastfeeding women. Not for use with alcoholic beverages. Excessive use or use with products that cause drowsiness may impair your ability to operate a vehicle or dangerous equipment. So that is supposed to be on the label for Kava products. From a Chinese medical perspective, long-term use can damage yin and blood. That actually makes sense. If you look at that, that skin dermopathy, the, the Kava dermopathy that we we're talking, um, that would be, could be attributed to, to yin deficiency. Garen says, to avoid preparations that include stems, leaves, or root pill, that may be associated with hepatotoxicity he he believes and and there's a little bit of evidence of this though uh stronger evidence needs to happen that it's actually the all those hepatotoxic sort of aspects are in the stems the leaves or the root peel so that's pretty much it on kava if you have any questions of course uh, you can always get in contact with me i'll give you that contact information in just a minute uh, I next week's episode is on a, a A-listed herb one of our, our most commonly used herbs Dongue or Angelica sinensis very very commonly used herb we're going to get into that that's going to be really fascinating and that's going to be our next episode of Spurbs Herbs next Saturday I'll be uh, recording at 9am on Saturday and uh, putting it up in the, nec- in the few days after that thank you again for listening uh, to remind you, when you do buy from Amazon, please use the banner ad on our homepage so we can uh, take a few, get a few pennies, and continue doing this. You can always get in touch with me at Dr. at spurbsherbs.com or at our website www.sperbsherbs.com That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. Thank you very much. Spurbsherbs. herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Swerber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy. Dobbin, Campbell.